This is the Rocky Mountain Review. My name is Maximus Hunter. And I'm Ren Wadsworth, and we have a packed show for you tonight. You're going to want to stay tuned for it, but first we have a question for you related to one of our guests, actually. So this is very exciting for us. We have NPR's Greg Meyer in our studio today. How's it going, Greg? I'm doing very well, thanks. Good. And we're very excited to have him here. So we thought that as NPR's national security correspondent, uh, we would let you ask him some questions. So if you have questions for the actual NPR national security correspondent in our studio, things you want to know, ask him. If we have time, we will definitely relay your questions. But uh, we have a huge show today, so we're really just going to jump right in. And we're going to start with our uh, local newscast with Coda Babcock. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is local news for Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. Pooter School District is opening a new joint middle and high school in Wellington. The new school will be able to enroll 1,500 students at its maximum capacity and will be located on the northwest corner of County Road 62E and County Road 9. Construction has already begun, but the new campus won't be completed until fall of 2022. The school will sit on a 132-acre lot and will be divided into three lots, with the, with the combined secondary school taking up the first lot and the other lots reserved for a new elementary and middle school as population growth occurs. For more information, visit psdschools.org slash 2016-bond-mill-news-school-wellington. The last Kmart in Colorado, located in Loveland, may be closing. Kmarts all over the state and nation closed in recent years, with the most recent one being in being Pueblo's Kmart. While Kmart has not directly responded to these claims, the closure is speculated due to new seasonal positions being listed online, titled as the position, followed by store closing Kmart Loveland. A man arrested in connection with a summer 2019 home invasion has been sentenced to 10 years. Deshaun Fanning was arrested with two other suspects on June 30th, 2019 after breaking into a home in Fort Collins. A man and woman were both assaulted and a teenager was shot in the incident. The court dates for the other two suspects are February 13th and March 2nd of this year. That's all for today's local news. I'm Coda Babcock and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on KCSU Fort Collins. Alrighty, thank you, Coda. Of course. Alrighty. And when Max said we were going to roll things right along, we really do mean we're going to roll things right along. But before we do anything, we do want to ask our listeners that question once again. Um, we have NPR's national security correspondent Greg Meyer here today, if he wants to uh, introduce himself a little bit. Uh, hi there. I'm really glad to be here. I work in Washington and I cover uh, U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, foreign policy, a uh, wide range of stuff. Got a lot going on these days and uh, happy to answer your questions. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. So, yeah, if you have any questions for Greg, text him in at 970-491-5278. That's 970-491-5278. And we'll try to get to them if we have time. But we're just going to go ahead and get started here. So, Greg, you have over 20 years of experience in journalism investigating foreign policy and national security. Right now, what's going on in the world that you think that United States citizens should be paying the most attention to? I, China, I, I think, in a word, in a country. Um, I, it's hard to get a lot of information out of China because both Chinese journalists and foreign journalists working there um, are not allowed to report and write freely. And yet, along with the United States, these really are the two most important countries in the world right now and will be for the decades to come. So I think the combination of so much that's happening in that country and so much that we can't really see, and, and just most recently with the coronavirus, 
virus. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of questions about how accurate the, the government information has been. We've seen where they've tried to cover up information because it looks bad. So I, I think for all of these reasons, um, I encourage people to, to seek out as much as they can on, on China, which is not a, a story that's in the headlines every day, but a very important place. So what would be a good way for people to learn more about what's going on in China? Well, uh, NPR uh, would be one way. We have always had two uh, correspondents in China, very good correspondents, uh, one in Shanghai, one in Beijing. It's gotten harder for them uh, to, to travel around and report. Uh, we've certainly seen that. People who These are people who've, who've worked there on and off for maybe 10, 15, 20 years, and they see, have never seen it so challenging. And then uh, there's other big media publications, whether it's the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, some of the British newspapers that also have good uh, China coverage as well. Awesome. I am interested um, that you brought up China because in a lot of my classes, a lot of political science uh, scientists are saying that China could become a bigger superpower than America. What are your thoughts on that? Well, China is going to become a very powerful country. We know that. And I'm, I'm not even sure how you measure, you know, who's the bigger superpower. But the the rate that we've seen China develop economically and in and, and and other fronts has, has absolutely been extraordinary in my, in my adult lifetime. Now, China's got a lot of problems, too. And these, this is what we don't see. They have lots of protests um, that just don't make the news because those kinds of protests that might get covered in the U.S. or in other countries countries don't get covered there. Um, issues, as we've seen with the coronavirus or financial problems, or a lot of times there's there's a lot of doubt about government statistics. When they say the economy is doing this well, there's some doubt about that. So um, the U.S. And, the, and China are going to have to learn, are in an interesting position because at some levels they're going to be adversaries, sort of mil, uh, the military role they both want to play in the Pacific. In other ways, they have to cooperate when it comes to global trade, when it comes to combating something like the the coronavirus or uh, terrorism or or something else so it, it's going to be a very interesting difficult fraught relationship because of this combination of needing to cooperate on some issues and and be rivals or adversaries on others that uh, relates pretty cleanly to what we wanted to know next uh, how do you think this country's global standing by this country I mean of course the United States of America how do you think our global standing looks at the moment um, not, not great. I think we've seen um, a, a real doubt and sense of where is the U.S. going, uh, where is the U.S. headed. And I, and I don't want to point at, at a president or administration. I think there's a lot of division in this country. Um, getting our political system to work well um, is a real challenge. There used to be, right after World War II, there was a senator who said famously that politics ends at the water's edge, that that when we go we talk about foreign policy the country should be united and you're not a republican or a democrat you're an american and there needs to be a consensus and to help the president uh, pursue the policy he wants to pursue and we've seen i think in the last 10 or 20 years uh, before this administration that really break down and foreign policy uh, become just another battleground for politicians and and again even the impeachment hearings um, had, a, had a big foreign policy uh, component to it and and it was also very much a bitter political issue. Wow, yeah, I didn't even know that quote existed. <laughs> All right, to change topics a little bit, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but today is actually Safer Internet Day, and that relates to this next question, which is that there appears to be an increasing, uh, there 
an increase in global focus on cybersecurity and cyberterrorism? And how do you think the U.S. compares to the rest of the world on this? So the U.S. has still has the most sophisticated uh, cyber capabilities, whether you're talking about the government and the National Security Agency or whether you're just talking about private companies. But other countries are, are catching up fast. And I think what we've seen, particularly in the last uh, few years, has been this emphasis that cybersecurity, cyber terrorism, this is not just a government problem. It's not just for the FBI or other government agencies to prevent. Yes, that's part of what they do. But we're seeing uh, other countries try to steal U.S. technology st- secrets, break into the U.S. financial system. We saw, we had a case yesterday where four uh, Chinese members of the Chinese army were indicted for breaking into the Equifax credit system, stealing 145 million uh, records of Americans on their credit policy, their credit scores. Um, so this is the kind of thing. So it's not just um, spies trying to steal government secrets or military secrets. They're trying to steal financial secrets, uh, health secrets. Universities, cutting-edge research at university has also been a big target uh, by the Chinese and by others. And I think there's a, a greater awareness of this now, but there's still a lot of issues out there. So would you say we put enough resources into funding cybersecurity, or we should be focusing even more on protecting our cybersecurity. I, I think it's an, uh, what you'll, the, the experts that, I, that I'll talk to will say it, it's, it's certainly about focus. Uh, they would certainly like to see companies um, and individuals and universities spend more emphasis on uh, learning how to protect themselves. Um, and, and that can often involve more money. But a lot of it is just awareness of, you know, learning uh, to avoid uh, spear phishing and, and common sense things. Still the most common um, way that uh, a foreign, whether it's the Russians, the Chinese, or, or just um, a foreign individual hacker, is, is still just spear phishing. And people will click on an email and click on an attachment without, uh, without uh, being suspicious of that. Alrighty. I was wondering if you could touch on the role the U.S. plays in geopolitics. Well, I think that the U.S. is going through a real uh, challenging period right now where the U.S. has been the world leader in politics and in military might and, and has the world's largest economy really since the end of World War II, often working through institutions like the United Nations, NATO, the World Bank, the IMF, that the U.S. has built. And there's been a sense, I think, from this president and a lot of his supporters that it's too, it's too costly. It's too much of a burden. The U.S. should back off and let other countries pay more for their security. So I think there's a real uh, wrestling match going on in this country about does the U.S. want to play the role it's played for the past several generations? Or is the world changing and the U.S. needs to uh, find and define another role for itself? Yeah, and that leads right into our next question about... Um what you think we could be doing differently? Well, I think you have to look at the rise of all the other um, countries, the developing countries that are uh, not really developing so much, and where they are developed. Um, you know, I worked overseas for 20 years, and I remember even you know a decade or, or 20 years ago, you would go around to a lot of Asian countries, um, especially East Asia, and they would talk about these being developing countries. There was nothing developing about them. They had the most modern, cutting edge, uh, whether it was transportation, whether it 
it was um, computers, um, you know, they, they, they're developed. And so those countries are going to play a larger role. And there's nothing the U.S. can or, or should do about that. One, I remember one former intelligence official told me something I thought was a really good line that summed it up. He said, um, I remember a world that used to be more dangerous, but I've never been in a world that's been more complicated. So if you look back to the Cold War when the U.S. and Russia had thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other, um, it's perhaps not quite that dangerous. They're still there in reduced numbers, but perhaps a little less tense. But it's all the different players out there. It's not just the U.S. and the Soviet Union. There's lots of different countries doing lots of different things. And so it, it they're, it's not just uh, a black and white Cold War world. It's a very complicated world. If I may, I, I, I think that's so interesting that uh, the whole the whole underdeveloped country label is almost more part of the uh, American narrative of just having peace of mind in our national security than an accurate representation of the world around us, which I, I just think is an interesting distinction that you pointed out there. Um, I'm going to move into our last uh, question here, and then we'll see if we can take some listener questions. Um, in your opinion... What have the ramifications of the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force Resolution, or the AUMF, which gave the President authority to, quote, use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism? What do you think the ramifications of that 19 years later have been? Well, it was appropriate at the time uh, in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks. And then there was a second similar AUMF, as you, as you noted, in 2002, which um, was used to authorize the invasion of Iraq. Um, but now those are, as you note, um, 19 and 18 years old. And they're being used for things that have nothing to do with uh, going after the al-Qaeda in Afghanistan or going after um, the Iraqi leadership, which has long since uh, fallen. And Congress has tried to claw back some of that authority. It, it, Congress did not use its authority to declare war um, for for many wars, not just the, the, the most recent ones. Um, just recently, um, within the past month, the Democrats, um, in the House at least, um, said that the U.S. would passed a, a, a resolution that the, the president would have to get authorization if he were to wage military action against Iran. So you, you are seeing that at least from the Democrats trying to claw back some authority and not leave this blank 20-year-old check there. Right. Yeah. And my question, too, about that is, um, what are your thoughts about uh, these resolutions not having a time constraint? Because this was the same with the Tonkin Gulf uh, resolution, that there is no time constraint on when this would stop being in place. Yeah, I mean, the Constitution is very clear. Congress is supposed to declare war. And in the 1970s, they passed a law that essentially puts like a 60-day clock that starts to tick if, if the president um, sends forces into, into a military uh, conflict or into a war. Basically, he's got 60 days to get approval from Congress. But Congress has not declared, formally declared war uh, since World War II. So all of these, these wars we've seen have not been uh, declared. And 
and it, it's really gotten to a position where the, the president, and I'm not t- talking about this president, I'm talking about several previous presidents as well, um, have, have used that authority because it's very convenient. It doesn't constrict them. Um, and so they like it. But Congress, I think, has really not shouldered its responsibility. And I'm not talking about either party. I'm talking about all members of the Congress. The Constitution itself. All right, Greg, uh, we got to get you out of here on time. It's been a real pleasure to have you in here and chat with you. You're uh, a treasure trove of knowledge, and we're lucky that we got you for even just such a short amount of time. But I just want to ask you if you have any final thoughts, shout-outs, anything you'd like to say before we move on. Um, this is an election year. I always think foreign policy is very important. We still have troops in, in three countries fighting war. So I'd encourage people as, as they get involved in politics this year um, to, to think about that and, and look at what the candidates are saying about foreign policy. And I think it always gets uh, overlooked, uh, and yet it often becomes a very important uh, part of any president's administration. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That has been NPR's Greg Meyer, national security correspondent. We've been very lucky to have him in the studio. Uh, we are going to come back after the break with a, uh, we're actually going to, we're going to do with a piece about the Low Cell Doll Collection with uh, Lisa Taylor. Um, and so we have a question for you. Uh, yeah, we do. I'm trying to find it. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite or least favorite doll as a child? Um and since we have Coda in the studio, Coda, did you have a favorite or least favorite dollar action figure? Uh, yeah, my grandparents, well, my grandparents passed down all these like French dolls to my mom and so they were always on display, but there was this one that like was playing the drum and it was really cool. I don't know how else to describe it. It was just porcelain <laughs> and glossed over and it was like a little kid playing the drum, so. Right on, well, if you have doll or doll favorite or least favorite stories, text them in to 970-491-5278. That's 970-491-KCSU. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review and we'll be right back after the break. Thanks for listening. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. My name is Maximus Hunter. And I'm Ren Wadsworth. And we just heard from NPR's security correspondent. Um, Greg Meyer. Greg Meyer, thank you. I was blanking on that last name. Um, however, we have Lisa Taylor in the studio today, and she is from the Lucille Doll Collection, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Lisa Taylor, the outreach coordinator for the Global Village Museum of Arts and Cultures in Fort Collins. So glad you're here, Lisa. You bet. So uh, we're going to start off by just asking our listener question again and answering it all around the room. So uh, did you have a favorite or least favorite doll? Tell us about it. Why? And uh, if you're listening at home, you can text that in to 970-491-5278. That's 970-491-KCSU. But Lisa, you first. Now, are you talking about in the Lozal Doll Collection or when I was a little girl? Oh, I'm talking about, like, childhood. Uh, a Thumbelina doll, and also I had a favorite Barbie. Nice. What was your favorite Barbie? Uh, her name was, well, I named her. Her name was Lucy, which was my nickname. And she had the boyfriend, Ken. But the Thumbelina doll, I probably lost it in one of my moves about 15 years ago, and it was heartbreaking. Oh, Rylan, what about you? We have our reporter, Rylan, uh, in here. Hey, guys. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I had an entire collection. I have a collection of American Girl dolls that my grandma bought me when I was little. And uh, so probably those. I, yeah, they're pretty special, so. Ren, what about you? Um, I 
was really into Bratz, but Bratz were not my favorite. I think my favorite was like Barbie Mariposa, the one that was a butterfly. That one was really cool to me. Oh no, actually I watched that movie with my little sister back when I was a kid. I remember that one. That was pretty dope, yeah. Um, I I was never uh, a doll person. I don't know if you could call this a doll, but I had a, a stuffed rabbit I was given at birth and his name was Max Bunny, which is super <laughs> creative for a bunny for a kid named Max. But uh, I was given to him like right when I was born and I, I still have him. He lives in my closet. Uh, yeah, so but that's, we, that's my favorite. We well, like- I think boys can have dolls because my son had a favorite uh, stuffed whale who was Shamu. Nice. Aww. Nice. Yeah, if we're counting stuffed animals, then then I was a big doll person because I love okay. stuffed animals. Yeah, but we'd like to know what your favorite doll was. So go ahead and text us in at 970-491-5278 and let us know what your favorite doll, stuffed animal, action figure was as a kid or is now. All right, so Lisa, you're the outreach coordinator for the Global Village Museum. Uh, what was the process behind choosing the Locelle doll collection? Why that specific exhibit? Well, Jean Nash was one of the founders of the Global Village Museum, and in the late 1980s, she saw an exhibition of Lozell dolls in New York City. She fell in love with them, and as her finances allowed over the next several years, she acquired about 50 Lozell dolls. Lozell dolls were are handcrafted and were made by Tibetan exiled Tibetan monks in India. The, a little bit of the background, if you're interested, in 1959, the Chinese uh, Communist China took over Tibet, and they uh, the takeover involved, unfortunately, the killing uh, and exile of over uh, well the destruction of almost all the 6,000 Buddhist monasteries at the time, and the exile of a lot a lot of the Buddhist monks. The Dalai Lama and about 250 monks um, fled to India and India gave them some land in northern India to establish a Tibetan government in exile. So this was in 1959. Around that time in in the 1950s, the Buddhist monasteries in Tibet were the centers of culture and centers of art. So when they were exiled to India, about 30 year, uh, between 1959 and 1980, they were hoping to go back to Tibet. In the early 1980s, they realized they were not going to be able to go back to Tibet. So they wanted to preserve the costumes and the dress of the original inhabitants of Tibet. And so they started making the Lozel dolls. Lozel, L-O-S-E-L, is actually named after the Drepung Lozeling Monastery that was established in southern India. And a woman by the name of Kim Yeshi, who was an American uh, married to a uh, uh, Tibetan exiled in India, she came up with the project of the Lozal Dolls to one, make money for the monastery, and two, preserve the costumes and clothing of the Tibetan people prior to 1959. They actually went through a, a very elaborate process in order to authenticate the costumes. They uh, meticulously researched memories of the artists who had lived in Tibet, interviewed with Tibetan natives and former government officials, and detailed photographs from Tibet. So each doll represents both a historical record of the dress of Tibet and a work of art. Beautiful. Yes, they are beautiful. They are completely handmade. Uh, 
starting with uh, they used wire to start to make the body and then around the wire that was bent they stuffed cotton the cotton is then overlaid with original Tibetan paper that is made from a uh, shrub that is common in the Himalayas. Once they have the body made, they, uh, with the research that they did, they made the dress completely by hand using fine silk, wool, and brocade, and then uh, made the accessories, everything from needle pouches to daggers to swords. Um, and all the clothes are uh, lined with silk. And uh, although th some of the dolls are now worn and you can see some of the stitches when they originally made, not one stitch should be visible. The heads of the dolls were actually made separately from the bodies. The heads are made of clay. And the reason they were made separately is because the clay, when it dried, the heads would shrink as much as 25%. So they had to fit the head to the actual size of the doll. And of, let's say, six or seven heads that they made, sometimes three or four would get discarded because they had shrunk too much or not shrunk enough to fit the actual body. Interesting. Uh, so I have a couple questions for you, but we did get a doll story. So I just wanted to read that real quick. Um, so this is actually from our uh, assistant local music director, Yasmin, and uh, the story is uh, her favorite childhood, oh wait, we just got another one too. Her favorite childhood dolls were Bratz, she would always buy the Yasmin dolls because her name was Yasmin. My favorite Yasmin doll had henna tattoos on the arms, which is probably why she wants tattoos now. And we got another text that says, in 1965, oh whoa, this was a while ago, I got a Scooby-Doo doll. She was a beatnik, and when you pulled her string, she said, dig my crazy long black stockings. And this was the same Christmas I got Beatles 65 and Go-Go Boots. So uh, wow. I'm really curious who wrote this. Yeah, so talking about history, um, you talked a little bit about the Tibetan background of these dolls, and I was just wondering if these dolls had any other cultural or historical value. Uh, they have a uh, cultural and historical value in the sense that the dolls, um, uh, their accessories and their clothing can represent what was going on at the time. Like one of the dolls is actually a Gaba, which is a region of Tibet, G-A-B-A, -A, woman and her daughter. And the daughter has short tufts of hair, which uh, was very, was emblematic of a woman, of a girl that was not married. So the way that they are dressed or the way they are accessorized can symbolize the region that they are from or one of the rituals that they did, the aristocrats and the officials. Actually, there were five categories of doll made, regional, ritual, aristocrats, and uh, government, and Lama opera. Uh, Lama meaning goddess they had, and then um, monastic and religious. Gotcha. Um, and. We did just find out that the person who got the doll in 65, her name is Leslie, and she's from Old Town. So thanks, Leslie. I'm curious, because um, I'm sure there's probably a lot of different opinions on this. How do people react to the exhibit? Uh, they... They're actually fascinated. I do off-site presentations of the Lozal dolls, so if anybody, if any, uh, and I do them free, um, and so if anybody wants an off-site presentation about the dolls, I am more than uh, happy to go give that. 
When I do off-site presentations, the people or people that come into the museum are absolutely uh, flabbergasted at the detail of the accessories, the detail of the clothing. There's many layers of clothing, the detail of the accessories, which was often the longest and most tedious part of making of the dolls. Alrighty, and speaking of public opinions about dolls, um, <laughs> some people like me are scared of dolls due to the like uncanny valley nature of them and stories like Annabelle and the boy probably don't help with that. Um, do you think this collection could help people change their minds about dolls maybe? Well, I am absolutely convinced that after the museum closes up at 5 p.m., uh, every day that the dolls come out at night and they oh. talk That's not helping. and they, yeah. 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 And they dance <laughs> and then they go back into their cases right before we open in the morning. <laughs> they are extremely lifelike but they are such beautiful dolls that there's nothing to be scared about. So it's like a know, night at the museum kind of it thing? It is a night okay. at the museum. That was that was incredibly scary for me. Just the, uh, <laughs> just the image and, and uh, that just brings us to our final question. How can people see these dolls? They should come to the Global Village Museum. We had them in cases in a hallway, but they became so popular that we actually opened up a separate space for the uh, Lozal dolls and, of course, called it the Lozal dollhouse. I would like to end with a sort of a cute story. Jean Nash, as I said, who was uh, the collector of the dolls, she had to have them shipped from India by a special exporter and a special importer in Denver. And Heidi, uh, Jean Nash, and her daughter, who, Heidi, who is still on our board, they used to go down to Denver to pick up the dolls. And each time they went down, it was clear that the dolls had been searched by the customs officials because they thought that they were maybe smuggling drugs in the dolls. And so eventually how they would ship the dolls, they would ship the dolls with their heads off so they would not get damaged in the process by the customs officials ripping off the heads and then trying to put them back on. Jeez. Well, I love the history here. Thank you so much, Lisa. This has been Lisa Taylor from the LaSalle Doll, Doll Collection. Uh, if people want to learn more, where could they go? Uh, globalvillagemuseum.org. We are open Monday through uh, Tuesday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And tours are always welcome. Awesome. Thanks, Lisa. You bet. We're oh. gonna come. Oh, we're gonna come right back with uh, actually another Global Village exhibit interview. This time it's about the history of beer. Woo! So uh, we're all over the place today. Yeah, we really are, but uh, lots of Global Village. Yeah, so yep. stay tuned for the history of brewing and a little bit of campus news yeah. with our own Ryland Todd. And we and, do have a question. Oh, yes, go and, ahead. And one more thing, we are always uh, interested and welcome collaborations with Colorado State University and their students. The next exhibit that you're gonna be talking about, Brewing History, Fort Collins Global Connections is actually curated by graduate history students at Colorado State University. And the Lozell Dollhouse was curated by Bridget Kennedy, who recently graduated from CSU with a degree in art history. So we welcome internships, we welcome collaborations. We're right down the street, so give us a call. Absolutely, and we'll be talking to one of those graduate students in a second. But before we go on break, I wanna know, what's your favorite type of beer? Why argue it to me? Because I have opinions. And you can let me know 
or all of us really, I think I'm the only one over 21. But, you are uh, the only one over 21 well, in the studio, let, besides Lisa. Besides Lisa. Let me know at 970-491-5278. What's your favorite beer? Why? 970-491-KCSU. And we can, uh, we can chat about that. But we're going to be coming right back with Colin from the Brewing History Museum. Only here on 90.5 KCSU-FM, Fort Collins. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. Our uh, music that normally plays when we come back didn't want to cooperate today, but we have a very exciting guest. We have Colin here with the Brewing History exhibit. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Colin Fogarty. I'm a graduate student in the Public History program here at CSU. Thanks, Colin. And we have a question for our listeners, and that is, what is your favorite kind of beer? Um, You can go ahead and text that in at 970-491-5278, and we'll go ahead and ask Colin first. Um, I'm probably going to have to go with Guinness. Any oh. reason why? Mm, if I did, my family would probably kill me. <laughs> are you Irish? Yeah. Nice. All righty. And Max, since you are the only one on our staff here who is Not over 21, uh, what is fa- your favorite kind of beer? Uh, my favorite cheap beer is Imperial, which is Costa Rican beer. Uh, I just love it, and it's actually like even cheaper than normal cheap beer, and I think it's really tasty. Uh, I think my favorite nice beer would have to be Elysian Space Dust IPA. Uh, that sounds dope. I don't have it that often, but every time I do, I'm reminded that, like, oh, this is really good. And, like, I still like IPAs. It's not just, like, a, a phase. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we actually we got a, a text in from uh, Hannah Copeland, who uh, runs our station. And uh, Hannah's opinion was cheap beer. Hannah likes Rolling Rock, which I, I personally can't agree to, but I, <laughs> I don't want to disagree too hard because you, you know, make sure I have a job. So you, I'm gonna you signed my that. paycheck. <laughs> exactly, but I, you know, it's a cheap beer. And for uh, craft, Hannah said Five Barrel Odell, which is an excellent answer and a local one, which we always appreciate. Alrighty, um, but moving yeah. right into our interview, Colin, could you give us a little bit about your background? Uh, Sure. This is my uh, second year in the public history program at CSU. I'm uh, doing an emphasis on museum studies, and part of the program involves helping a local museum in building an exhibit. And uh, that's what we're doing right now with the Global Village Museum in building the exhibit, Brewing History, Fort Collins Global Connections. So that's how you got involved. Did you get to? Did you get to pick which? Uh, did you get to pick this exhibit specifically? Uh, it was our part of our professor. Um, the Global Village Museum contacted him, and they worked on uh, an idea for an exhibit, and they decided on brewing history. Gotcha. So um, was this a long time in the making? Was this uh, is this something that has been going on for a while, or is this pretty new? Uh, the official process started in uh, about December, and though he's been, we've been kicking around the idea since about last semester. We started doing some research into Fort Collins brewing history, and uh, that's kind of when the idea emerged. And how is this coordinated between CSU and the Global Village Museum? Uh, right now, um, yeah, we're doing a museum studies course with about um, a dozen students, and then we just meet at the Global Village Museum once a week, and then we uh, have our meetings there, coordinate with the museum, and then we disperse for the week, uh, work on our own separate projects, and then come back and try to bring everything together and then get ready for the next week's project. I kind of like that whole process because you're constantly doing new stuff and getting feedback and reflecting on the work you've done. Um, what are some of the things you've done 
for the exhibit so far? Uh, I'm working on uh, artifact loan coordination, and then I have a particular section in the exhibit that's on the uh, identity that brewing helps to build, particularly in Fort Collins, and then some of the festivals that it helps make, like um, Oktoberfest and the Tour de Fat Parade. So I, th I think that's actually a really interesting question we didn't have written down. Uh, how do you think that brewing and beer has impacted Fort Collins' identity? Well, brewing has been a big part of Fort Collins' identity almost since its origins. Um, in the 1880s, shortly after Fort Collins was founded, they had uh, 13 bars, which was about one bar for every 100 people. And uh, that immediately became a big issue for Fort Collins. And so in 1896, Fort Collins instituted its own prohibition of alcohol. And it lasted for about 73 years until 1969. And so for essentially Fort Collins has defined its identity as being separate from brewing initially. But then, uh, once the craft brewing revolution broke out, Fort Collins completely did a 180 on its identity with brewing and started to become a, a tourist town, a college town, and really embraced a uh, drinking culture of the United States. And now it's become a major part of the Fort Collins economy and um, its sense of uh, welcome and um, good cheer to other people. All right. So you said that you were going to be uh, involved in the Tour de Fat, right? Uh, that'll be a part of the exhibit, yes. Okay. Uh, will you also be involved in the Art Walk? Uh, yes, that's part of it. Yep, we're going to be um, different festivals, uh, the Art Walk in particular, yeah. All right, how is uh, your exhibit going to be incorporated into the Art Walk? Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the Art Walk's on March 6th, right? Yes. Yeah, that'll be the opening day for the exhibit. Um, we'll be um, welcoming people in at... Sorry, um, yeah, we'll, people will just be able to welcome in and um, we'll have the... Equinox keg delivery tricycle there out the front, so people Whoa. can take a look at that. that I'm going to be there, cool. so that's pretty exciting yeah. for uh, for me. If you are listening and you want to know more, I will be going to the opening and reporting on that. And I'm I'm curious, and you basically already answered this question, but just for me personally, will there be beer there? No, unfortunately, we cannot have we will not have beer there, but we will have hops. If you're curious oh. about having a smelling station and some of the other ingredients, so you can get better idea on the uh, brewing process. For those who don't know, because I, I actually learned this fairly recently, what relationship do hops and beer have? Hops help make a lot of the uh, flavor, the taste that you get in beer, a lot of that aroma. That's all from the hops process. Hmm. Gotcha. Um. So how big is the museum? Or the exhibit? Uh, the exhibit will be in the main gallery. It's going to have, uh, we'll have um, movable wall dividers. I want to say uh, you could probably fit about 75 to 100 people in there. So it's a good space. Wow. Alrighty. And what kind of story are you trying to tell with this exhibit? The exhibit aims to connect the brewing landscape of Fort Collins with the international history of brewing. So we want to show how um, German, Belgian, and uh, even some Asian and African cultures and their brewing techniques and styles have influenced Fort Collins. Uh, New Belgium in particular, if you know, um, the owner uh, took a tour on his bike through Belgium and that inspired a lot of his own brewing techniques that he uses now in Fort Collins. And then uh, Anheuser-Busch, you can know, has its German origins. And so there's just a very extensive international history to brewing in Fort Collins, and we want to help uh, bring light to that. Awesome. I, I'm very curious to see what you guys have to say. Uh, I'm curious if you uh, brought us here. Do you have any fun facts about beer for us you can uh, just take off the top? Uh, let's see here. 
during uh, some of the earliest brewing processes in uh, ancient Egypt, um, they didn't know about hops or uh, fermentation yet. And so the initial process, it just kind of made this grainy crust at the top. And so in order to do it, they people didn't just drink beer. They had a straw that they stuck through it, and then they'd hold each other up so that they could get the very last bits of it. So it was almost like an early keg stand for the uh, ancient that. Egyptians. So we've kind of come full circle now. Wow. The ancient Egyptians would be proud. They would. <laughs> All right. And what part of the exhibit are you personally most excited for? I'm really excited for the Prohibition exhibit because um, in the United, nationally, Prohibition only lasted for about 10 or 11 years. But for Fort Collins, it was a 73-year period. So that's an extensive part of our local community history. And it's fascinating to see how much of a shift there's been as to why Fort Collins was so opposed to it and now why they've embraced it so much. I, I actually had no idea about that. That's really interesting. All right. So I think we've generated a good amount of hype and intrigue. How can, uh, how can people find the exhibit? How long it'll be open? Where can they go? Where can they learn more? The exhibit is being held at the Global Village Museum, which is located on 200 West Mountain Avenue. The exhibit will open on March 6th and go until May 20th. Normal museum hours are Tuesday to Saturday, 11 to 5. Uh, the museum page will have it on uh, the specifics on the exhibit itself there and their Facebook page as well. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap it up and go to a break. But thank you so much for joining us, Colin. Thank you for having me. Any final thoughts? Long live Guinness. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. We are going to take that break, but you're going to want to stick around because after the break, we're going to have our own reporter, Ryland Todd, let you know what's going on around campus. And then we're going to do our National Day news and the weather to wrap up the show. So you're not going to want to miss any of that. Yep. Right here on the Rocky Mountain Review. Rocky Mountain Review, 90.5 KCSU. Fort Collins, thank you so much. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. My name is Maximus Hunter. And I'm Ren Wandsworth. And we just heard from Colin Brogerty about uh, the brewing history exhibit that's going on at the Global Village Museum right now. Yeah, sounds really exciting. I had no idea that uh, Fort Collins spent so much longer than everyone else in Prohibition. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, If you missed that or any of the other, uh, we did three awesome interviews on today's show. Colin, we had Lisa Taylor from the Losel Doll exhibit, at the, also at the Global Village Museum, and we got to speak with NPR's Greg Meyer, who is their national security correspondent, and that was just fascinating. If you missed any of that at all and you want to check it out, it's all going to be on our website, kcsufm.com, under the news tab. We specifically are under Rocky Mountain Review. And yeah, check it out if you missed it. But we're going to keep on shugging right along here, yeah? Yeah. Ryland Todd is here in the studio with us, um, and she has a little bit of news for us. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, This is Ryland Todd with your campus news for Tuesday, February 11th. Today, Colorado State University... Yeah, it was today. (laughs) Colorado State University celebrated its official sesquicentennial during Founders Day. Uh, that means our university is 150 years old. That's crazy. Wow. Happy birthday, Colorado State. Yeah. Um, Colorado State University was recently awarded another platinum rating from the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education. This is CSU's third time receiving the award. 
Under the independently run program, Sustainability Tracking Assessment and Rating System, STARS, the comprehensive sustainability efforts of 990 universities around the world were tested. STARS measures more than 1,000 individual data points in four categories, academics and research, engagement, operations and planning, and administration. Based on the score received, institutions are then awarded a, ratings of a rating of bronze, silver, gold, or platinum. This year, CSU earned the best score in the United States with 88.14 points, 2.48 points higher than its previous score in 2017. To earn a third platinum rating with the best STARS score in the U.S. is incredible recognition of all this work done by the faculty, staff, and students of Colorado State University. Sustainability is a true community effort, and we at CCU take sustainability as a point of pride in everything we do, President Joyce McConnell said when asked about the award. There are many ways that our university is sustainable. Every college within the institution does its part to be sustainable. The College of Agricultural Sciences offers 23 sustainability-focused majors, concentrations, and specializations, and nine agricultural experiment stations focusing on participatory learning. The College of Business offers a college-level sustainability learning outcome and impact MBA program with a corporate sustainability track. The College of Health and Human Sciences includes a class on sustainable buildings and infrastructure, as well as a graduate concentration in sustainability and resilience in the construction management program. The College of Liberal Arts offers 126 courses focusing on or including sustainability, as well as a PhD program in environmental politics and policy in the political science department. The College of Natural Sciences provides an environmental psychology course, and a professor is developing sustainable materials to replace hard-to-recycle products. The College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Me uh, Sciences is home to an environmental health program as well as the CSU Honeybee Veterinary Medicine Club and Center for Environmental Medicine. The College of Engineering houses an environmental engineering degree as well as the CSU Chapter of Engineers Without Borders, empowering quality of life through sustainable engineering projects. And lastly, the, the Warner College of Natural Resources offers 161 courses that focus on or include sustainability as well as a master's degree and PhD in ecosystem sustainability. Colorado State University has now joined Stanford, the University of New Hampshire, the University of California, and Thompson Ra Rivers University in Canada as the only institutions ever to receive platinum ratings. And that is all for Campus News for today. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Wow, thanks, Ryland. That's such incredible news. It's all good news today for CSU. It's our yes. 150th anniversary. Also, we're like super cool and sustainable more than like anyone. And there were Ooh. so many more awards that were given to different departments as well. I, I read something about the ROTC um, getting an award as yes. well. Yeah, we talked, we talked about, about that last, last, week. last week. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty it's been a good few weeks for CSU. Yes, it has. Uh, but... Let's focus on the now, specifically the what day it is now, specifically the Ren, what day is it today? <laughs> today is February 11th, and in some National Day news, it is National Don't Cry Over Spilled Milk Day. I already did. Oh. Uh, this day promotes that you see the bright side of things and keep a positive attitude even when things aren't going your way. 
The proverb came from James Howell originally in 1659 and originally said, no weeping for shed milk. I think I need Max to say that in old English talk. No weeping for the shed milk. Yes. <laughs> and while the saying has evolved over the years, the meaning is still the same. You can't change what has already happened. So in celebration of this day, don't sweat the small things and keep your head up. Today is also National White Shirt Day. This national day is also known as White T-Shirt Day, and it commemorates uh, the resolve of a historic auto workers strike. The national calendar explains the history of this national day by saying manufacturing provided a large part of our workforce in the early part of the 20th century. When the 1929 stock market crash triggered the Great Depression, auto manufacturers laid off workers and cut costs. GM did as well, eliminating the more expensive models. They stripped down the remaining models and sped up the production to grueling pace. As they hired workers back, they did so at a lower pay and didn't consider, consider seniority. In 1965, the Wagner Act allowed workers to organize and join Nin labor... 1935. Oh, thank you. Uh, to organize and join labor unions legally. By 1936, conditions reached a dangerous and fierce pace. Workers had organized before, standing in picket lines that only put... That put not only their jobs at risk, but their lives too. Sit-ins, though, created an opportunity to shut down the plant entirely without any replacement workers crossing picket lines. And on December 30th, 1936, GM workers took up residence in Flint, Michigan, body plant number one, after a plan to walk out was derailed. Their sit-in lasted 44 days and brought production to a halt and impacted not just GM, but the entire auto industry. Wow. Yes. Um, uh, it is also... Oh gosh, sorry. National Shut-In Visitation Day. And that encourages you to visit those bound to their homes. A shut-in remains in their home due to physical, emotional, or psychological reasons. But you can help them bring some cheer to their home by visiting them and celebrating this national holiday. And we talked a little to Greg Meyer about this, but it is the U.S. Safer Internet Day. And uh, as the name suggests, this day promotes safer internet usage for both adults and teenagers, and also kids if they're using the internet, obviously. Um, from cyberbullying and identity theft to fraud and human trafficking, the internet can be a frightening place. Safer Internet Day and ConnectSafety.com aim to make a, the internet a better place. Um, I didn't write about these, but I did want to acknowledge that today is also National Make a Friend Day, National Inventors Day, and National Peppermint Patty Day. Yum. Yum, yum, yum. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ren. But there is something in the air that we have to address. There is. There is. Do you know what it is, Max? I, I have a sinking suspicion. A sinking? It's time for the weather! Woohoo! Woo All right. The snow finally stopped. Yeah, baby! <laughs> Ooh! The high for today was 32 with some sun and minimal cloud coverage and winds. Oh! Bet you weren't expecting that. You can expect very similar weather for the next couple days. With Wednesday having a high of 34, and Thursday with a high of 33, three, and freezing is 32. So both those highs are above freezing, and there's a shot that maybe all this snow could melt. Probably not, but maybe. <laughs> That would um, be nice. That would be really nice. If you're wondering what the weather is going to be like on Friday, if it's going to change, if it's going to snow more, if it's going to become 70 again like it was for Super Bowl Sunday, at, at this point, honestly, it's it's so random, you're going to have to listen to the Rocky Mountain Review here on 90.5 KCSU on Thursday if you want to know reliably what the weather is going to be like in Fort Collins for this weekend. 
But uh, sadly, that's the end of our show. It is the end of our show, and we have to thank some people first, though. Uh, yeah, Damien Castile for the amazing theme music that is playing right now, as well as our opening music and our weather music and our break music and most of the music we play. Yeah, we also would like to thank all of our guests that we had on the show today. Lisa Taylor, Greg Meyer, uh, Colin Brogady. Thank you guys all so much for coming in and having interviews with us today. As well as our reporters, Coda Babcock and Rylan Todd. Thank you so much for your hard work. We really appreciate it. Alrighty, we have to thank everyone, and I really do mean everyone here at KCSU and everyone at the Rocky Mountain Student Media Corporation. You guys are amazing. Yep, quick list. Julia Baddeles, Hannah Copeland, Isaiah Reyes, Peter Walk, Monty Daniels, Mia Sawaya, Hunter Sinclair, Asher Korn, Desiree, Taylor, Sam, uh, uh, Josh, now everyone, um, you know, uh, um... Yeah, thank you. We love you. You're amazing. Uh, Yasmin, for texting in. Everyone, just you're yeah. all involved. I have to thank you, Max. This show is so amazing with you in it, and it would be so sad to not have you in it, of course. Um, I, <laughs> oh, love do- I, lo- happen <laughs> I love doing this show with you, and I hope we can do it forever. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you, Ren. I love doing this show with you, too. And finally, we have to thank you for listening. We couldn't do this without you. You have to, you know, have listeners for a radio show. So with that, we'll We'll see see you you next time. time.